Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my second podcast in my series called Moses and the Plagues. Last podcast, we learned that Moses most likely was heir to the Egyptian throne because, as the Jewish historian Josephus had written, the pharaoh had no heir and his daughter had no child other than the adopted Moses. As the grandson of the pharaoh, Moses spent 40 years being raised really as an Egyptian prince. We also learned that the Hebrew people, Moses' people, had been in Egypt at this point for 430 years. They had initially left Canaan and gone to Egypt because of a massive famine that swept the land. And that while there was peace initially for God's chosen people, at some point their numbers grew to a staggering number that became a perceived threat to the pharaohs and They started to enslave the Hebrews and subject them to hard labor, hoping to start to diminish their numbers. But God is sovereign, and the Hebrew people continued to multiply until they numbered in the millions. As we study Moses and as we start to look at the ten plagues, we're struck by the continued irony in the book of Exodus Pharaoh's plans to eliminate the Hebrew people first by relying on midwives to kill the male babies, and then when that failed, due to the cunning of the midwives who just said that Hebrew women are strong and they give birth before the midwives even arrive, to rely on his own people to then drown the Hebrew babies, and then to basically have his plans foiled by none other than his own daughter, who drew the baby Moses out of the Nile River. And it will be Moses who will eventually be led by God to free all the Hebrews and lead them out of Egypt. I want to take a few moments to talk about Pharaoh's daughter, who became Moses' adopted mother. If you saw the Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments movie, you might recall that she had the name Bithia. Well, I discovered there is some biblical truth to this based on 1 Chronicles 4, verse 18. It talks about Pharaoh's daughter named Bithia. The translation of this name in Hebrew is daughter of God. In the Jewish tradition, in their Midrash, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the scriptures, they believe that Bithia actually converted from her pagan Egyptian faith to Judaism. And in the translation of the First Chronicles passage, she's actually called a Jewess. The Jews also feel that she is one of the women of valor that's described in Proverbs 31, verses 15 through 18. You may have heard 
Ruth in the Old Testament referred to as a Proverbs 31 woman, but according to Jewish tradition, so was Pharaoh's daughter, Bithia. Proverbs 31 verses 15 through 18 says, Even in the night season, she arises and sets food on the table for hungry ones in her house and for others. She sets her heart upon a nation and takes it as her own, carrying it within her. She labors there to plant the living vines. She wraps herself in strength, might, and power in all her works. She tastes and experiences a better substance, and her shining light will not be extinguished, no matter how dark the night. The phrase about getting up while it's still night in the Jewish interpretation, which refers to Bithia, they have her attending the Passover meal before the Hebrew exodus, which took place at night, and, quote, seeing that her trading is profitable, meant that because she now believed in God, she, as a firstborn, would not be killed, and she would also leave with Moses and the Hebrews. And she sets her heart on a new nation? Well, the Jewish interpretation continues that Bithia will eventually marry Caleb, Now, Caleb in the Old Testament was one of the 12 spies that entered the promised land to check out the land. He and Joshua were the only two of the 12 who weren't afraid and feel that they should enter the promised land and subdue it. So this amazing woman, Bithia, went from being a daughter of Pharaoh to, as her name implies, a daughter of God. Take time to think about the amazing role that this young woman played in God's plan to save the Hebrews. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Now a story continues with Moses. While his first 40 years were spent in great splendor, his next 40 years were spent in obscurity as a shepherd in Midian. It's not until Moses is 80 years old that God reveals himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God identifies himself as the great I am. He never revealed himself in that way before to any man, but he revealed himself to an old guy of 80 in the desert as I am. In other words, I am who I am. I am unchanging. I was and I am. It's wonderful that God can make even our failures work together for our good, isn't it? How many times do you think while Moses was alone in the desert, did he kick himself for acting so rashly and killing an Egyptian 40 years earlier? But Here we are, 40 years later. The Pharaoh, who was his adopted grandfather, has died, and there's a new king in town. And God asks 80-year-old Moses to return to Egypt to confront this Pharaoh, 
to release the people from their years of bondage. Hey, you're never too old to be in the service of the Lord. He has plans for all of us. But how does Moses respond to God's request to return to Egypt? The next part of the story is to me yet more proof that Moses was a real person and not some made-up superhero. Moses responds the way many of us respond when God asks us to do something. Who am I? I have no ability. I have no message. I have no authority. I have no eloquence. And perhaps the most astounding but honest response from Moses is found in Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, but send someone else. Moses is basically saying, I don't care who you send, but don't send me. I'm not going. But eventually he did submit. And in essence, he said, okay, I'll go if I have to. Think of Moses's life up to this point. 40 years of easy palace living as an Egyptian prince perhaps even heir to the throne of Egypt. And then he decides to reconnect with his Hebrew roots, and in a fit of rage, he kills an Egyptian slave master. And then he spends 40 years in the desert in exile, a relative nobody. But those 40 years in the desert as a shepherd? Well, They were preparation for the next 40 years when he would lead God's people through the wilderness. And his 40 years in Egypt taught him how to be a leader and how to approach Pharaoh, even though he seems to feel very inadequate at the moment in the presence of God. Here's a valid question. Why did God leave his people in Egypt for 430 years? Well, The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God wanted to deliver his children from the land of bondage, but he could not do it until they were ready for him to do it. This is in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 through 18. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you refused and said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee until you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Isaiah reminds us that God brings us to a place where he can bless us. God could not save the Hebrew people until they asked him to do it. He could not save them until in the midst of their bondage, they cried to God and asked for deliverance. 
Moses will go to Pharaoh and start this process of asking for God's people to be let go. And what a process it is. It'll take 10 plagues before Pharaoh will finally let God's people go worship their Lord in the desert. The 10 plagues described in Exodus come in pairs. Two from the Nile River, the blood and the frogs. Two involving insects, gnats, and flies. Two epidemics, plague on livestock and the boils. Two that destroy crops, locusts and hail. And the final two are darkness and death. There's a sense of building destruction and anxiety as we move through the plagues. We'll see that God uses the plagues to bring judgment on all the false gods of Egypt and to demonstrate his faithfulness to the Israelites. God in his own words describes why he's sending the plagues. Exodus chapter 7 verse 5. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. But before the ten plagues occur, Moses and his brother Aaron appear before Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And they simply ask that Pharaoh allow the Hebrew people a three-day feast in the wilderness. At this point, Pharaoh asks, Who is this Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Exodus chapter 5, verses 3 through 19. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw where you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had the straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? The Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Well, why have you treated your servants this way? Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are, lazy. 
That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, get to work. You will not be given any straw. Yet, you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told, you're not to reduce the number of bricks required for you each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, oh, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Remember, Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh in the first place, but God persuaded him. What would you do at this point if you were Moses? Maybe say a few bad words? (laughs) Give up? Well, Moses took it directly to God and basically said, Okay, God, what is going on? Why did it happen like this? I made it worse for my people, not better. Well, what's so awesome about this is that God can take it. He doesn't rebuke Moses in chapter 6 for questioning him. This is important for us to know. Our God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to ask him questions. He wants us to say why. God explains to Moses, well, it's not the right time yet. In other words, God asks Moses to wait and see what I do to Pharaoh. I'm actually hardening his heart. He will eventually let my people go, but it will be with a strong hand. Eventually, you're not going to need to beg him. He will beg you. Trust me. God needed to remind Moses that his word doesn't change. God had promised Moses that Pharaoh would let the people go. And now Moses just needs to wait upon the Lord to see this promise unfold. We need to know that God could deliver the people of Israel by merely willing it so, by lifting his little finger. He didn't need to take months to accomplish this task. But he had a purpose in doing it this way, didn't he? His purpose? Well, by the end, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and honestly, the whole world would know that he is God. Keep this in mind. This explains a lot of what happens to us and to our country and to our world, doesn't it? Please remember that suffering is not always because God's angry with us and not that he couldn't immediately make it all go away because sometimes he does. But many times he doesn't so that his glory may be manifested. This is not heaven. Sometimes God will allow us to exhaust all human effort so that our hands become empty and we're left with relying solely on God. Because remember, the purpose of this life is to bring us into a right relationship with God, our creator, so that we can enjoy eternity with him. Ten times we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, this is troubling for some until you start to study the word of God. 
God had foreknowledge of what Pharaoh was going to do. In fact, he told Moses that Pharaoh would reject the request to let his people go. This was based on God's knowledge of Pharaoh's heart condition. It was based on his knowledge of Pharaoh's attitude toward God. And as Pharaoh's attitude became more bitter, the Bible tells us he started to harden his own heart. Pharaoh starts to see the events around him as further proof that he's right and God is wrong. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the fact that rejection of truth, I love this, brings strong delusion. Rejection of truth brings strong delusion. There are going to be many in the future who will believe a lie in place of the truth because God sent them the truth and they rejected it. The same is true for Pharaoh. All right, let's start to look at the plagues. As we look at these 10 plagues, you may be struck at how miraculously God protects the Hebrews and how he makes such a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians, teaching us that God can and does take care of his own. But it is important for us to remember that the Israelites still are very much affected by what went on and the judgment upon the land of Egypt because they're witnesses to it. First, God will allow all to see the power of the devil imitate the power of God. Huh. First, before the plagues start, Moses throws down his staff and it turns into a serpent. Cool, right? Well, Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing and their staffs also turn into snakes. This is a miracle that God has permitted Moses to perform and God has also permitted the devil to empower the magicians to perform. It's an imitation of God's power by the devil's power. But what happens next in Exodus chapter 7? Well, <laughs> this is actually one of my husband's favorite scenes in the Ten Commandments movie. God permits the devil's power only for a limited time because then the serpent from Aaron's rod gobbles up all the other serpents, proving God's power is supreme. So now we have the first plague. This is where the Nile River turns into blood. The Egyptians will have to dig holes near the river to obtain drinkable water. This is really terrible for them. We read in Exodus chapter 7, verses 22 through 24. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Yeah, the magicians did the same thing that Aaron did. They turned water into blood. 
They did this by the power of the devil. Moses did it by the power of God. Then we have plague number two, the plague of frogs. Exodus chapter 8 verse 7 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams, canals, and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I'll let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave you to the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They'll remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs that he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Here again, we see the magicians were able to do the same thing that Moses and Aaron were able to do. At this point, if you were Moses, where would your faith be? This isn't going well, is it? Can you imagine the smug look on Pharaoh's face? The magicians must have also been so relieved they got to keep their jobs and their heads for another day. But then, look at the third plague of lice, or some translations say gnats. By the way, it's a bad plague. This is Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he wouldn't listen, just as the Lord had said. Well, at this point, it would appear that God is starting to win over the magicians. They admit this is the finger of God. These magicians are actually discussed by name in the New Testament in Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. This is so interesting. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, 
boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind of worm who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres, those are the two names, opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because As in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Wow, God put a stop to their power, and their folly did become clear to everyone. Next week, we'll continue to look at our plagues 4 through 10 and how God will attack Egypt's idols one by one. It's hard for us to hear God and react to God's calling, isn't it? Sometimes he lays something on your heart and we want to ignore it and keep on going down the path that we're on. Or we shake our fist at God saying, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing such suffering? Well, there's a really beautiful poem called Treasures by Martha Snell Nicholson that really speaks to the life of Moses and I think our life as well. Treasures. One by one, he took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was empty-handed. Every glittering toy was lost and I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift your hands to me. So I held my hands towards heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour out his riches into hands already full. God can't pour out his riches into hands that if they're full. That's so true. God came to Moses when his hands were empty and his soul was still. God still had huge plans for 80-year-old Moses, but it was to be in God's perfect timing. Moses probably thought his life was nearly over, and yet in some ways, It was just beginning. Are you wandering in the desert right now? Does your life seem to be a circuitous path without rhyme or reason? Ah, 
Perhaps God is readying you for a new season. Sometimes we do everything to avoid the will of God, don't we? But we can learn from the life of Moses. It does seem easier to look the other way and keep on keeping on the path we're on, but the best path for us is the one that God points us to, and we trust and obey. It's been said, enjoy the little things in life, for one day you'll look back and realize those were the big things. I actually love that. Enjoy the little things in life, because you'll look back one day and discover those were the big things. Well, you see, in the kingdom of God, the little things are the big things. When God was looking for a man who he could appear before in a burning bush and call to be a deliverer for his people, he looked for someone humble that was busy doing a seemingly menial job tending sheep. But he was being faithful in the little things, wasn't he? Moses had learned to quiet his soul and was actually ready to be in service to God. God had prepared Moses his whole life for this moment. This week, work on quieting your soul and lift up empty hands to the Lord so that he may pour out his riches. What is he preparing you for?